Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here and to be seen and to bring you God's Word and His Gospel today. 25 years plus in pastoral ministry, I have, by virtue of my position, been a part of a lot of conflict. That's kind of embarrassing to say when you are a pastor of a faith that's about peace and grace and joy. I was called to help a church out almost 20 years ago, way down in South Texas that was in a huge dispute. Half the congregation wanted to get rid of their pastor. You know what they were debating about? Which English translation to use, which one was right, which one was wrong. A lot more recently, I've been asked to come and resolve conflicts in a church family because they were building a new church building and it had com- the, the building of the church had been the catalyst to destroy the building of relationships and they were all on different pages. I look in this room, we built this church. I remember someone saying, another pastor saying to me, whoever you get to be the chairman of the building committee, say goodbye to them because when they're all done with the building, the stress with all the family of believers will drive them away. That didn't happen, but it, it was on my mind. There was a dispute about the color to paint those ducks. Not a very big one. Most of you didn't were here didn't know about it. Kind of small, color of this carpet. You know the drill, right? You've heard the stories. You've been a part of them. It's embarrassing, but we fight about service times. We fight about music style. We fight about a lot of things, don't we? We get off track. And while it's embarrassing, we have to ask the question today, when is it right to fight? When is it right? See those two guys right there? That's from a, a, a movie, a Bible movie. Do you know who they are depicting? If you've been looking at the bulletin while you've been waiting for church to get started or were bored with a hymn, you might know. That's Peter and Paul. Now, Peter had another name sometimes, Cephas, and Jesus had renamed him Peter. So you're going to hear, hear it used back and forth, Peter and Cephas today. But Paul is confronting Peter. It was a good fight. It was a fight that had to happen. And Paul wrote about it later when he wrote the Galatians. The New Testament has 27 books. 13 of them are letters Paul wrote to churches he had started. He came through a, a town called Galatia, and he had started a church there, and then he had left. And then he wrote them a letter because they needed his strength in the gospel to fight for their salvation because something bad had happened. And the same thing that was happening in Galatia The thing that was happening in Galatia was the same thing that had happened earlier in Antioch, and Peter was in the middle of the controversy. And Paul wanted to tell the Galatians, hey, this thing I'm talking about is worth fighting for. That we, as God's people, in a church group, in a building that meets regularly, that call ourselves his people and name ourselves as a group, we can actually lose the foundation of the faith if we're not careful. And Peter, early, after Jesus was gone, was starting to, as a leader, slip away from the foundation of the gospel. So Paul wrote about it to the Galatians because they were starting to slip away too. 
and he wanted to tell them about a confrontation. So this is a movie picture of the confrontation. Paul gives a word picture of the confrontation, and he tells us some things about the gospel. The gospel. What do we mean when we say that? We mean the story that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth as the God-man to save humanity from the judgment of his heavenly Father on our sins that would condemn all of us poor, miserable souls to hell. That in love, he took all the poor, miserable punishment so we could be saved. The old, it's an old word, gospel. It means good news. It's the good news that God loves sinners, which means that God loves you. It's predicated on the bad news that you are a sinner, which means a sinful person. Not a little bit sinner. You're a lot sinner. I'm a lot sinner. You are full of sin. And God, who is, he doesn't miss one thought that you've ever had, and he understands the motives behind everything you've ever thought, said, or done. He's seen all the all the big sins in your mind and all the little ones, and they're all big to him. And he has forgiven every one of them because he punished his son in your place. And you are forgiven and you are loved. And he doesn't want you to sugarcoat your sin, but he wants you to bring it to him and let him wash it away every day. It's the good news. It's the foundation of faith for a Christian. I go by 7-Eleven every Sunday morning and get my Sunday coffee with a little cappuccino. and They know me there. I know them well. But there was a lady right in front of me in the line this morning that did not know me well, but she's a Christian, and she was talking about her, her heart problems, and she said, I'm going to go see a cardiologist this week, and I'm checking out trying to get my card, you know, the little, you know, I tried to swipe it, and you're supposed to stick it in, and the lady at the counter is the owner of the business, we talk all the time, and she knows what I do for work, and the lady next to me is talking about going to the cardiologist, and I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a heart patient, and, and uh, she said, really? Well, I go to this cardiologist, and all the people in the office, they're all Christians. She, I was in a suit, she knew I was going to church. They're all Christians, and I thought, yeah, but I wonder if they all know cardiology really well. Because I was really glad my doctor knew cardiology as well as he was a Christian. So is that what it means to be a Christian? That you're, you're going to be really good at being a doctor and everybody will be different at work? No, it means you trust that Christ is your only hope of going to heaven. And here's what happened in Paul. Paul's going to tell us now what happened in Galatia. He tells the Galatians what happened in Antioch. Put the passage up there. Get out your folder if you'd rather look at that, but you can just look at the screen. And I'm going to read to you what Paul says. And he's trying to teach us that the gospel's worth fighting for because it's our only hope. This is what he says. Cephas is Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. You think, no, Peter couldn't be condemned. He was Peter. For before certain men came from James down in Jerusalem, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. He'd, have, he'd sit at the table with them. But when those people arrived, 
he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, the Jewish group. They were Jewish Christians who were going back to Judaism. The other Jews that were up in Antioch, they, they, with him, they joined him in the hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even our friend Barnabas, who was very open to sharing the gospel with people, he was led astray. Go to the next paragraph. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of them all. Just think, picture those two guys staring each other down at crowds all around them. You are a Jew, yet you live like the Gentiles and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We, who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Uh, some of you are a victim of your ignorance and others may be struggling to know what all the different thoughts are that are going on in these two paragraphs. And my job is to try to pull us all together, no matter what your level of knowledge is, to have to each, each one of you get a clear understanding of what the emotional, passionate, important thing that Paul is saying. But it comes from a very different context than ours. So picture the ancient world where Judaism is a visible group that's known as those who had the book called the Old Testament and believed that by keeping all of God's laws, the Ten Commandments, and all the Jewish dietary laws, clean, cleanness and uncleanness laws, and the many other ceremonial laws, they believed that by honoring God and keeping His law, they stayed in His good favor. His good favor was that He gave them the law. And they believed they stayed there. And along comes Jesus, who said, I fulfilled all of the law, and I cover your life with mine, because by keeping the law, you cannot be right before God. You otherwise would go to hell, even if you're a Jew. The Jews always talked about Gentiles who did not have the book, did not try to keep the laws as sinful people, because they were completely without God's law. So when Paul says, Jews are not sinners by Gentile standards. He means you are a Jew and you've been trying to keep the law your whole life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase. He said, you lived with Jesus and you heard his good news that he came to save all people and that Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners who need God's grace. And yet you are acting like a Jew when the Jewish Christians come around. But before they came around, you didn't do this to the Gentiles. On the surface, it looks like Peter's just being a snob, cliquish Jewish Christian, but it's much deeper than that. Here's the deal. Jews thought that if you sat and ate with a Gentile, that Gentile might be not practicing the law, so they might be ceremonially unclean. I won't go into all the details. It's kind of gory. But if that person was unclean, they would make you unclean because you ate with them. So Jews thought, you'd please God and keep yourself clean by not eating with the Gentiles who had no scruples. Peter knew that was all washed out, that Jesus sanctified everybody with his grace. And he ate with the Gentiles, 
all the time and he didn't worry. Remember the whole deal that happened to him when the food came down out of heaven in the vision and God said, rise and eat, and it was unclean food and all that, and he went into that, that uh, Cornelius' home? All of that's already happened. Peter knew very well that there was no difference before God and that, that all that ceremonial stuff and the rules about who you could eat and not eat with, which wasn't in the Bible, all of that was gone. And then, when the Jewish Christians came up from Jerusalem to where he lived, he acted like it was important, which would do a mind game on the Gentiles. Like, what is important then? Is all this Jewish stuff important, or is it just Jesus that's important? And what Paul is saying is, you know, Peter, that it's just Jesus. He came and he justified everybody. Big word, what does it mean? Jesus Made it so the Father in heaven treats you just as if, justified, just as if you never sinned. So a Gentile would start to think with a great leader like Peter pulling back and wanting to just eat with the Jewish people, maybe we still have some laws to keep in order for God to accept us if Peter is modeling it this way. And Paul said the good news of the gospel is at stake. You're making it look like Jesus wasn't enough is Jesus enough yes say it Jesus is enough you cannot do anything religiously you should not you ought not to make it look like there's something plus Jesus that people need in order to be saved that's worth fighting for that Jesus is enough And so Paul said, I confronted Peter to his face. He's telling the Galatians for a reason, though. Some Jewish Christians have come to town at Galatia and done the very same thing to them. And he's saying, look it, I've already been down this road. I have the T-shirt. I even confronted the Peter that was with Jesus. The gospel is a grace in Christ plus nothing else. You Galatians, don't let anyone, this is the word he uses later in the book, don't let anyone bewitch you into thinking you've got to go keep ceremonial laws. Now I'm just going to say the obvious. I've been saying it a couple times. The only hope that any human being has of ever spending a moment in heaven is by trusting and believing in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. That's the only hope anybody has. Folks, we have to fight for that. We have to stand up for that. We have to protect it. We have to get emotional about it. We have to speak up, stand up for Jesus, and and be counted when people push against it. That in a relativistic society where people want to say what churches stand for is really their own name and their own traditions and we need to stay away from worrying about what church you're a part of, you need to keep your head clear. You do want to be concerned about what church you're part of and you support and you you put your blessing on and you get your food from. You want to find out what they teach. Sometimes their name teaches you something about what they teach, but it's hardly that any little name will teach you much at all. You have to get involved in a conversation and listen and find out. And if it's not the pure gospel that Jesus is enough, run. Isn't that kind of one of those sayings now? You get a little video and they, something's happening and they go, run. 
Run. If they're not teaching the gospel, run. Because he's the only hope of anybody getting into heaven. And now I'm going to flip it to the second half of the text. And this is something that's equally important. And usually, this is the way that you can tell if a church is really deeply meditating on the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. What I'm about to read to you from Paul is sharing the secret of a good life. What it really means to be a good person in the eyes of God himself. And Paul is helping the Galatians understand that the same good news that's your only hope of going to heaven is your only hope of being a good person in the eyes of God. You ready? Let's, let's listen to this. You can just listen today. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Remember, Peter was over there eating with him. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a, law, a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I want to stop there and explain that first half. Just leave that slide up, though. What Paul is saying is, if I've come to faith in Christ and then I go on sinning in a practice of sin, does that mean that Jesus, by saving me, promotes sin? Because after all, one of his people that bears his name is sinning. And if I were sinning by eating with Gentiles, would that make Jesus a promoter of sin? Even though he's not sinning by eating with Gentiles. He says, no, I went and rebuilt my sinful life. He said, also, if I go back and say that I'm all about laws and keeping all these rules in order for God to have favor over me, does that make Jesus a promoter of that? No, I went back and rebuilt my law mentality, which Christians do all the time. And then he says what I'm about to read to you. He says, the truth of the matter is, as a Christian, I've been totally reborn. But he doesn't use the reborn word. He uses the crucified word. So just listen very carefully. I'm going to read it to you. It's verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law Christ died for nothing. Here's what he's saying. When I came to realize that Jesus Christ was my only hope of being right before God and getting to heaven, I died to all of my own reasoning about right and wrong. And I died to my own evaluation of myself. He says, I cannot look at Gentiles and say I'm better. I look at Jesus and say I'm saved. I cannot look at God and say, you must be happy with me this week because I stayed away from the things that I sinned with the week before. Because... My righteousness is in Christ. It's not in my performance this last week. 
I won't look at myself after a bad week and say, you must be mad at me, God, because I was worse this week than I was the week before because my righteousness is in Christ. I love God because, right now, because God loves me. I was, I'm crucified to the law way of thinking. I'm thinking in the I am loved way of thinking. I've been rescued by an amazing human being that put out himself out of heaven and ran down to Houston with his boat and his pickup truck and he gave his life for me while he ripped me out of my house. Now, why did I say it that way? It's recent. And I have been listening to a few of the testimonies of people that were rescued and you have too. And have you noticed how emotional they are? How traumatic they know their situation was? How dire and how thankful they are for the people that took the time to go and be part of the rescue? If you ask one of those people, and I did this week, get to talk to one just one-on-one, with tears in her eyes, she talked about a woman who was helping her family just in the aftermath rescue them they've been away from their home for three weeks rescue them from their dire situation by just giving her the time of day among millions of people they're looking for help and she's i don't know what she meant by this she was a born texan she said and this woman was from wisconsin (laughs) tears in her eyes someone from wisconsin was willing to help me i thought that's pretty cool half the people i know are from wisconsin (laughs) I'd just been in Wisconsin. But I didn't say that. I was just listening. <laughs> what I, my point is, I don't know what it was. My point is, she's emotionally thankful and deeply appreciative of that woman. And she can see her and feel her and her love. And she said, it wasn't the thing that she did for me. It was the love that she gave me, that she saw me. She remembered me. She called me back later. She had a list on a notepad. And when her system got pulled up, she made sure that I had what I needed. And she said she she remembered me. My friend, is that a picture of you and the way you feel about Jesus? You see how you can get away from that and you get into the churchiness and the community and the religion and all of that and you get far away from that and you lose your motive for everything you do as a Christian when you get involved in all the other stuff. It's all the peripherals. But if every day it's like, he died for me, he's my savior. When, you go to, when you're tempted and you're, and you're praying that Lord's Prayer, Lord, lead me not into temptation, you're begging him to help you please him because you love him so much because he's from Wisconsin. You know what I mean, right? He's that person that you appreciate so much. That's what Paul means when he says, I died to my own will. Just imagine having that motive right now in the center of your heart and some, someone says to you, it's your body, do what you want. You go, no, it's Jesus' body, he bought it, right? Everything about your life, all your decisions come down to this one thing. I love God so much, I just want to know what God wants me to do and I want to do it. That's your whole rule. I just want to know what you want me to do and I want to do it because I love you so much because you rescued me. I'm going to heaven. This is what Jesus meant when he said the night before he died, I give you one new command. Love each other as I have loved you. That's all I want you to do. And we say, okay, Lord, what's the loving thing to do? And he'll guide us through that because we love him who first loved us, right? That gospel gives you the pure motive 
for serving God, and there is no other motive that makes him happy. If you're living for us and the appearance you have before us, it doesn't make him happy. If you're living just to get somebody, trying to live right so you can just get them to come to your church, that doesn't make him happy. You live because you love God who first loved you. You do everything that you do because of that. And you're fighting for the gospel. You're fighting for the good news. And you can speak with confidence when you're living for Christ. And you can say, hey, that's a sin. I'm not saying you're a worse sinner than me. I'm just, that's the simple thing about confrontation and keeping your... That's a sin. It would be a sin for me. It's a sin for you. It's a sin. I love you, though. God loves you, too. And he came to rescue sinners, and he came to lead them back. So next time you get an opportunity to guide a sinner back to Christ, and there's a sin involved, help them to see how much their Savior has loved them so they can see they want to choose the right for the right reason. Because God loves them, and He rescued them, and they just want to please Him. Let's go to the last slide. This is the story of the Bible. And this is the last verse of the text, sort of paraphrased. If we set aside the grace of God, Christ died for nothing. If there's another way to heaven, Christ died for nothing. I've got four blocks that are going to come up here. The first one is, if you give up, if you give up the grace of God, then the evidence of God's love for us goes away. Let me explain what I mean. We will say God must be showing his love for us if we get a raise or we get a good job or the economy's going well or it rains or our health is solid, right? Or we get that we achieve something in our extracurriculars that we wanted to achieve. We'll say God is showing his love for us and we're not lying. I mean, it's true. But that's not the primary way he shows his love for us. And because we're sinners, we're passing through and there's a day when our health is not going to be solid. And there's times when we're going to lose our job. And we're going to have car wrecks. And we're going to have problems. And we're going to have family issues we can't control. And if you're looking for the love of God in the circumstances of your life, you've given up Christ and he died for nothing. The evidence that God loves you is that he put his son on the cross for you. And that is out- timeless. That is outside of your circumstances. And that's your anchor in a storm. That's your shelter in a tornado. That is the power of God when you're living, you're otherwise going to be depressed. It's your happiness and it's your joy. Jesus, you died for me. If we give that up in the church, in our life, in our heart, we give up the evidence that God loves us and it's a, our faith will go out the window. Next, next slide. The second thing is we give up God's only rescue plan if we give up the gospel. He doesn't have another plan. There is not another way. So if we give up that Christ is the only way, we give up always because it's the only way God has to save us. And then the next slide. If we give it up, like I said in the second half, we give up our reason to live a good life. It's not to win others over. It's not to gain an upper footing. It's not to earn God's favor. But the reason is because God first loved me. So if we give up the cross, we give up the right motive. And finally, last slide, we give up the main point of all of our preaching. 
if we're not preaching a Savior who rescued us from ourselves for eternal life, we are people in the church who are rearranging chairs on this ship that's going down. If, if we just come here every week and we tell you how to live better and have a happier marriage and live a good life, and we don't keep you in salvation of grace and peace in Christ, we're just placating you until the inevitable happens. We lose our message. We lose our proclamation. You see, Jesus Christ on the cross and coming out of that empty grave means everything to God the Father. It's his whole point. Make it mean everything for you too. Make it be everything. You'll live a life of peace and you'll live a life of pure motives with a purpose that the world can't take away. Amen.